It's time for class. Civics just doesn't begin and end on election day. This is Sunday Civics, the home for the civically engaged with political strategist L. Joy Williams on Sirius XM's Urban View. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Sunday Civics, the home for the civically engaged. I am your host, your civics teacher and neighborhood political strategist, L. Joy Williams. And I am so delighted that you made it to class this morning. Now this morning, we're gonna focus our conversation on labor unions <laughs> and specifically about a particular form of labor, which we, during the height of the pandemic, had somewhat of a national conversation about it, and that was of the work of home care and nursing home workers. I know there were a lot of scandals in a lot of different places about nursing homes in general, but we have to think about the labor force, the individuals who were on the front lines caring for people during the height of this pandemic, and for the next couple of Sundays, I want to have conversations with those categories of folks who during this pandemic had to take care of themselves, their families, but were also taking care of our loved ones <laughs> and showing up to work every day, whether that was in hospitals, at nursing homes, um, home care attendants. And I thought, who better to bring to the front of the class to have a conversation about that than the president of a labor union. And I am delighted to be joined by April Verrett, who is the president of SEIO Local 2015, I believe, which is California's largest union representing over 400,000 home care and nursing home workers. Welcome to the front of the class, April. Thank you so much. I'm really happy to be here. And I see we got we all got the, the memo about the red <laughs> this morning. <laughs> Those of you who are listening can see this, but if you go to the website, you can see the video. Both April and I apparently woke up and decided to choose red this morning. <laughs> so thank you so much. So I'm going to begin where we ask every first guest on Sunday Civics to begin by you telling us the story of your first civic action. My first civic action. Um, I believe I would, uh, what I remember, I was probably 10, 11, 12. Um, and uh, I went to uh, action. Um, it was on Good Friday. I grew up in a Catholic parish, went to Catholic school. And um, one of the lay people from the church who worked with us young people took us to an action that was a march that mimicked the passion of Christ. So we marched across the city and each station of the cross. Um, and if I'm sure us, you know, folks out there who are Christians are, are following the story, but each station of the cross highlighted an issue of social justice. And I cannot remember what, what each issue was, but I do remember marching through downtown Chicago um, and being immersed in a community of people who were um, really holding the part of Christianity that so many of us miss, that Christ, in fact, was an organizer. And he lifted up the issues of those of us who um, were treated the least among us. Um, and uh, so, yeah, that was my what I would say my first civic action was. It was a it was we're deep steeped in the church, but it, I think it, it's a testament to how I found my, myself doing the work that I do. 
um, and centering love and justice every single day and, and fighting as I think Christ would have fought. Um, and I'm not a deeply, you know, <laughs> religious person, but I do think that we can find um, lessons in, in how Christ lived. You know, that I really, really love that story because it's similar to my upbringing. And, you know, I've only known the story of Jesus, story of Christ through a social justice lens. Mm -hmm. um, my fam I come from a family of preachers and pastors and gospel singers and such. And so, you know, my upbringing has always been you know, Jesus as a, you know, one talking to his people, mm -hmm. right. <laughs> you know, coming to save and talk as people That's and engage right. with his people and not that it was sort of isolationist, meaning not to mm -hmm. engage with other people. It's just that, you know, I'm speaking and engaging and organizing and talking with my people and mm -hmm. then also highlighting the injustice of the overall larger society. Mm -hmm. And it was, it, it wasn't until I got to college that I realized that everybody didn't have that same lens, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, that I was just like, wait, yo, Jesus ain't a freedom fighter. Like what? Yeah, right. <laughs> Jesus is a freedom fighter. That's right. What kind of Jesus? Like, is that we talking about the same Jesus? <laughs> like I, I was, was like, I don't understand this restrictive racist one because I, we don't, we don't know don't, nothing about him. I don't, I don't, I don't know, know him. him. I don't know him. That's not my Jesus. Not my Jesus. I was like, I, I, I don't know. I don't know him doing the Mariah Carey uh, piece. I was like, <laughs> don't, don't know that Jesus. Look, Eljoy, yeah. I, I grew up in a, at a black Catholic church where we had a gospel choir. Choir. Yeah, girl. Right? I grew up <laughs> in a black Catholic church where people shouted, right? When the people wanted to get in up. In a Catholic church? I mean, now they might not have shouted the way some people shout, but we did our own version of shouting, mm -hmm. right? Where you were free to get up and be moved by the spirit. And mm. it's all I knew. Um, I, I was introduced to some liberation theologians. I didn't have language for it as a right. kid. Right, that's the thing. We didn't know what the what the phraseology, we didn't know, you know, the theology, if you will, mm -hmm. right? But that's where it came from. And it wasn't until college and after college when being, you know, presented with the language or presented mm -hmm. with the text that you were like, oh, that's what this is? Yeah, in college, the first time I read James Cone, I was like, what? <laughs> And it goes back to, and I remember saying, uh, I remember thinking, I was just like, this is a totally different Jesus than I, I don't, I don't know. I guess maybe everybody got their own. Cause well, like, my I, Jesus works for me. Right. I was like, I, I don't recognize yours, but I guess. But the other thing in reading your backstory is making the connection to the conversation today is that you actually, which similar to a lot of us, grew up in a quote union household mm -hmm. and being raised by your grandmother as I was as well, who also worked before, you know, she retired and, you know, I was in her care, but that she was a, was she a shop steward as well? Your grandmother? She, my grandmother was a shop steward. She worked for the Chicago park district. Uh, she was a locker room attendant. And, you know, basically what that means is that she cleaned up the locker rooms, right? She cleaned up the, you know, the different areas in different parks and beach houses and gymnasiums across the city of Chicago. Um, and she would take my sister and I to work with her. Um, and I remember she would, you know, hand us a mop, you know, hand us a broom. It was like, if you here, get to work, right? That's what we do. We work. And um, I remember being so ashamed 
Um, Because once a girl in the locker room, she asked me, do you, you want to do that? Like, why are you doing that? And I'm thinking, well, my mama told me to do it. Like, I got to do it. But just the the shame of, you know, being seen as a person who was doing that type of labor that has never received the respect that it deserves in our society, but is work that makes it all possible, right? Because if you don't have the people cleaning, if you don't have the people taking care of others, really making a way, um, the, other, the rest of us can't do what we do. And so I learned the value of work, the value of dignified work. And yes, I learned the value of standing up for yourself and speaking for yourself and building power with those that you work with. Um, and and uh, many, many lessons uh, Lucy Bell uh, Verrett taught me, but, but that's one of them. Um, and ultimately never to be ashamed of the work that you do because it all has dignity. You know, recently, uh, all of we were doing a family drive to somewhere and my husband and I were having a conversation about work and uh-huh. th- that very conversation about valuing work. And he's very big on, you know, we need to in American society not devalue different what we deem as work that's lower than us. Uh-huh. Right. So that someone working a fast food job you know, working, cleaning locker rooms or things like that. Those are jobs that are necessary. Mm -hmm. They are needed. And so we shouldn't think of them as transitional jobs or demeaning jobs. They are jobs. Mm -hmm. We need someone to do food service. We need someone to take care of our elderly. We need someone to farm. We need someone to do all of these things. Everybody shouldn't, we shouldn't think about aspiring to be in an office job or everybody has a role Mm -hmm. instead of thinking about demeaning. And it was a conversation that began because I was talking about, you know, fast, fast food workers being, Mm -hmm. or, or that type of work, which we in our lexicon have traditionally thought of as for students or for Mm -hmm. people going to school to transition. And he was like, why can't somebody just make a living working at McDonald's. Like, Mm -hmm. why do you you think about it as this is a transition to something else? Why can't they just be in food service and be able to, you know, take care of their family, take care of their children, send them to college or not send them to college? Why do you have to think about that way? And it was a challenge to me Mm -hmm. because I think of those things, right, as, oh, that should be for college students and high school students and people transitioning to something better. And he's like, why? Mm-hmm. You know, and that was our, our drive conversation. But, <laughs> you know, just sort of th- challenging myself even to to think about that. Yeah. And it's not the way we have been socialized to think about a certain segment of the workforce. But the, the reality is that corporations are making billions of dollars off of labor of these so-called transitional jobs, these so-called menial jobs. And here in this 21st century, it is the jobs that are people are people are working every single day to get by, right? They're not the jobs that students have or the teenagers have. Like these are jobs of moms and dads who are trying to, you know, put a roof over their children's head and a meal on their table every night. And again, when corporations, you know, profit billions of dollars in part because they are forcing others to live in poverty that the federal government has to subsidize, right? 
um, I think it, it's a gut check moment. And we've talked so much over the last 18 months about the need to not go back to the status quo. And I think as we think about work, about the value and the dignity of work, this is one of those can't go back to the status quo things that we all as a country have to grapple with. And who are we, right? Who do we wanna be as a country? I believe each and every one of us who wants to get up and go to work every day and work hard should not have to struggle, should not have to work two and three jobs to be able to get by, but that we need to make sure all work is valued and that that value is, is, that value is demonstrated in the wages people earn and the benefits that they have. Yeah, I think that is so important. Well, I'm looking forward. We're going to take a quick break. And then when we come back, I want to have this conversation about home care workers and the nursing home workers, mm -hmm. which your union represents, and just talk about how the experience we have, I guess, a, a, a certain view from the outside mm -hmm. of what that work entails. And particularly during this past year of COVID, what that has been on not only the workforce, but also on the people that they are taking care of. Mm -hmm. And, I, you know, I have a real question on do home care workers feel that their work now is valued and are they receiving the support, the attention, but more importantly, the compensation <laughs> and benefits <laughs> um, that they are entitled to during this time. So we're going to take a quick break and we'll come back with more of April Verrett, the president of SEIU Local 2015, California's largest union. We'll be right back. All the wahala, all the problems, all the things that you think that you must do to start in this world. Like when the teacher, schoolboy and schoolgirl come together. Who is the teacher? I go let you know. Welcome back to Sunday Civics. I'm Eljoy Williams, your civics teacher, along with our guest, April Verrett, who is the president of SEIU Local 2015, which is California's largest union. And actually, is it the nation's largest union as well? We're not the nation's largest local union. We're the second largest local union. I got to give props to my family, SEIU 1199 across the the East Coast, which is the largest local union in the country, we come in second. Okay. Okay. All right. Yeah. I'm familiar with 1199 here in New York. So definitely, definitely understand that. But, you know, before the break, we were talking about, you know, one, having a greater focus on the work of those who whose job it is to take care of those who need assistance and can't take care of themselves. So we're talking home care workers, nursing home mm -hmm. uh, workers, hospice workers, I'm a, I imagine as well, mm -hmm. sort of in that category. Let's talk about their work and their lives for a bit. Mm -hmm. What what does that look like? And just to give people greater context. Yeah, I think it's important first to know who these workers are. 87% uh, of them are women. So this is women's work. Um, overwhelmingly, like more, way more than half of the women that do this work are women in color. Three in 10 are immigrants. So we're talking about a whole lot of black and brown women, right? Who do the work of taking care of others. Primarily um, our seniors, right? People who want to still be able to live at home, but need a little bit of help. 
whether that's help going to the grocery store, making sure they take their medication, keeping their homes and their persons clean. Um, they may, you know, need help getting their insulin shot, but it's uh, maybe some of them just want somebody to be a companion, you know, and read to them and talk to them and help them with the crossword puzzle. Um, but it is the work of making sure those who need some supports, um, people with disabilities, seniors, um, have the support that they need so that they individually, the people who need the care, can live also a life of dignity. Um, we know that these workers overwhelmingly live in poverty. They, you know, are on Medi-Cal and Medicaid. They, they need food stamps uh, because, you know, it's poverty work. And it is work that is rooted, I believe, in the legacy of slavery in this country. The same work that these women do today, slave women did um, in, you know, during the centuries of slavery in this country. And so it's the work that women of color continue to do. In the 1940s, when we saw the National Labor Relations Act and other advances happen that made um, it possible to have a middle class that helped build power for unions, these workers were left out. Um, it was a conscious choice that said, we are not going to let those women, we are not going to let those black women, those brown women have the same rights as us white men. And I think we have to call that out and we have to be plain. And so we can connect the dots to the poverty wages that these women receive today, to the lack of workplace protections that they don't have today, to the, to the inability to form a union that, that for many of them still isn't possible today. It's all of the same stuff we have been dealing with and trying to unpack. Yet during this pandemic, they got up every single day. They put their lives on the line. They continue to go out of their houses. They didn't shelter in place. They went out into our communities to make sure others could shelter in place. And so I just am in awe. Of, of the workers that I get to work with every single day. They are some of the most powerful people I have ever known. Oh boy, I have so many questions and so <laughs> many things to go up. We gotta go, okay, let's go back, let's go back. Okay. So you talk about the largest percent, over 80% yes. of the people doing this work are women, women of color and immigrants. Yep. And even in my own family thinking of, I have many family members, uh, who are women in terms of the jobs, just thinking about my own family mm -hmm. and what jobs we have, you know, besides me being in politics, being in you know, whatever, you know, I'm an anomaly, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but I have, you know, aunts who are home care, you know, mm -hmm. home care, aunts who are RNs, mm -hmm. aunts who work in childcare, mm -hmm. right? Aunts, you know, that these are the service-based caring for other people, whether they be children or elderly, is just thinking about most of the jobs, most of the jobs that the women in my family have are of caring for other human beings, mm -hmm. right? Caring for elderly children, yeah. whether they're teachers, professors, it's all taking care of people. And I'm, I, you know, now I need to look this up and see, is that, you know, across the board for women of color in that the jobs that we hold are primarily human services, right? Mm -hmm. And taking care of other people, you know, and, and to your point of, as the federal government or even state and local governments over the decades have, you know, invested in industries 
that this is one industry and which is extremely essential, right? Mm -hmm. Into our development, but yet hasn't been um, valued in that way. It's it's seen as uh, uh, demeaning, if you will, to take care of someone else. Boy, <laughs> you know, just it's putting that into, I know, just putting that into, you know, perspective, because you went back to, you said 1940 when, when the, the federal best. government. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so are you saying that these women who work during that time don't have, you know, benefits that we long term benefits here? Yeah. So we have been able to over the last couple of decades build some power. Right. And we have you know, over 700,000 home care workers are now organized into unions across the country. But we had to do that state by state because still the National Labor Relations Act does not recognize domestic workers, does not recognize home care workers. It, it leaves out this segment of the economy. And guess what? It is the fastest growing job classification in the country. By 2028, we will have to add 4.7 million additional home care workers to meet the need of an aging population. Eljoy, 10,000 people turn 65 every single day. Who's going to take care of them? And if we don't get our act together and we learn how to value these workers and pay them what they're worth, we're going to have a real crisis on our hands. 10,000 a day? 10,000 a day. The baby boomers are are getting up there. Oh, yeah. I keep forgetting, (laughs) you know, you know, so much of our conversation about generations is most recently now is just, you know, it's the Xers. Mm -hmm. Well, no, wait, first, let me, nobody ever talks about us, the Xers. Like we're (laughs) we're kind of normal. right? (laughs) The people above us and below us, I don't know what's happening. So Xers, we don't get talked about, uh-huh. but you know, the, the, the boomers and the, the greatest generation, you know, like they have like mm-hmm. these grand names and everything. And we're just like, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, just whatever. But to think about 10,000 people a day, that means now it makes sense, right? Mm-hmm. For me, just anecdotal observation that particularly in communities of color, black communities where in which I live and work, majority of the jobs that are being advertised mm-hmm. are domestic jobs, right? Yes. Home health aid, yes. you know, on your track to, you know, nursing or something mm-hmm. of that nature. Everybody, and it, it's also a lot of scams, right? Mm-hmm. Of people pay this to take this test or to get training and things like that. And I, I remember thinking recently, I was like, why is there so much, you know, and, and, and now it makes sense. It's an mm-hmm. industry in which there is, you know, a lot of need in terms of talent where you can get a job. And hopefully if you can get a job that's union, you know, possibly that you can live yeah. a middle class or be able to take care of your family. Here's the real flex, I think. Right. You said yourself, right. This is the work that we do right? It's the work that Black women do, that Brown women do, that immigrants do. It is today poverty work. But if you think about the millions of women across this country, if we can do right by them and make these jobs good jobs, when you think about who you want taking care of your most vulnerable loved ones, you want someone who's well-paid, who's going to show up on time, 
who's well-trained, who's going to do a good job, right? Who can take a break when they need a break. Like if we make these good jobs in the way we think about good jobs, not only do we provide better care for those who need it, but I believe we can change our communities. We can create millions of middle-class jobs where today poverty exists. And when you center Black women, right, when you center us, we're going to center everybody else because we care for people. We, it's, not, it's never just about us. It's always about others. But if we transform the lives of millions of women of color and help them into the middle class, we change our communities, right? We build wealth in our communities in a way that we never have before. Mm, mm. So what has the impact, just talk a little bit more, you talked about the pandemic briefly, mm-hmm. but what has, what has been the impact of COVID on the industry, on these women mm-hmm. who have had to, as you mentioned, had to go outside of their homes not only put plans and things in place to protect themselves and their families that had to shelter in place, but then also go out into the world during Mm -hmm. the middle of a pandemic. Yeah. So I would say a few things first for our nursing home workers. um, I think it has made them more resolute than ever that they are determined that they're going to make sure our nursing homes across this country are safe places for people to live and for for people to work. And so there has to be real reforms, a real look at what happens inside of our nursing homes and how are we going to support those workers and support those residents to make sure our nursing homes are safe places. Um, And the second thing that it's done, I think it's made people reevaluate the system that we need, the system of what we call long-term care. There has to be more access to home and community-based services so that people can make the choice that they want to make. If you ask most people, where do you want to age? Where do you want to live? They're not going to say, oh, put me in a facility. They're going to say, let me stay at home. But people can't afford to stay at home because they can't afford to take care of themselves. And so if we reimagine a a system of care in this country that centers home and community-based services, that they have the financial support and resources to make that possible, we can really begin to meet the needs that that we saw identified during the pandemic, right? this real question. I think we don't want to talk about getting old, right? It's not something I think most people want to wrap their heads around. But again, baby boomers are aging and we cannot run from this this crisis that is brewing. And so as a country, we need to, to dig deep, to look at the systems of care and make sure we are providing this access to services that people need and that we are taking care of the workforce that's going to deliver those services. Mm-hmm. Are there... I'm sorry, Eljo. And the last thing I'll say yeah. is that these women are on fire, right? They they lived through hell during this pandemic and they are resolute and they know their power and they are going to use it. They're not going back. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I, and I understand if you, you don't have, maybe you do, but are there any countries that we can point to that do this well? 
Most that, of them. Most of them. That's why not is here. everybody else? Everybody else is doing stuff, but oh my god, my husband asks all the time, "Can we leave this country?" And I'm like, "No, we should stick it out. We can make it a better place." And he's like, and every time he comes home, it's a new story. And he's like, "We need to go." <laughs> so who else? Who who else does this better? Sweden, uh, Australia. Japan, you know, we have partnered with different long-term care workers unions across the country. And we have seen, you know, when there is a real investment um, on the part of, of government. And I think it takes both public and private partnership, right, to get this right. But you can look at many places across the world, both Asia, Europe, um, they just simply got much better systems of healthcare in general than we have but also particularly long-term care where it's a right, right? Yeah. It's a a right. (sighs) I need to make sure that my husband doesn't (laughs) listen to this because it's going to be another (laughs) tirade about, can we leave, can we leave this? Can we leave the ghetto? That's what he calls the entire United States. It's like we we live in the ghetto. Can we we get out? We go fix it. That's me, April. I'm like, but we can fix it. He was like, no, it's done. (laughs) It's gone. We need to go. It's over. There are plenty of other places that we can do this better that have already done this better. And we act like, you know, we're the insolent teenager who (laughs) who just refuses to do to do anything but and then i was like can't go <laughs> we all can't go we gotta fix if it. we all go but you know it's sometimes i do like talking about america as like the incident it's like sure. we're over 200 years old so basically in the context of the greater world yeah we're about mm-hmm. uh, have we have we left adolescence yet i mean <laughs> like, i feel like Certainly don't feel like it right because the temper tantrums the temper I know. tantrums <laughs> I feel like we're, are we in middle school? We're going through that awkward phase. We're just, you know, nothing can be right. I don't understand America, but, you know, leave it to Mr. Miles. We are the ghetto um, of the world. (laughs) We just, oh my goodness. Um, So, you know, one of the things, you know, that, that I saw as well is that you have served in a a number of different task force and boards and things of that nature. But one of the things that's most interesting to me is your role in being on the task force on recovery, particularly Mm -hmm. on business and jobs. And so we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, I want to talk about, I want to talk to women of color, women of African descent about a recovery of a country. Mm-hmm. I think it's something particularly, you know, interesting about our perspective in terms of what we are valuing or what we believe should be valued in a recovery and a reimagined mm-hmm. country and economy, you know, that we're thinking broadly, we're thinking in the future, everybody else is talking about going back and we're just, and Every Black woman, Latina, like Asian woman I'm talking to, they're all talking about, you know, a future economy we can build, a future workforce we can build. And everybody else is just like, we need to get back to the thing. I'm like, why we keep, why y'all with the back? Let's go forward. Let's let's go up that way instead of back that way. (laughs) That that way didn't work for us. That that way. That wasn't wasn't my Jesus. (laughs) 
I don't know him. (laughs) So we'll take a break and then we'll come back and talk about our recovery forward. (laughs) We come back. How can it be that you love the most unlovable part of me? Of me. How could you see your life was the Welcome back to Sunday Civics. April Verrett, president of. <laughs> we are having a great conversation oh, here. A, a great time. I love it. I, yes, that's what that's 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 what I like here. Yes, everybody is talking about going back to a normal April, and every I would say every black woman, every Asian woman, any woman I talk to about our economy as a country, our workforce, what we need to do. You know, every woman I talk to is talking about going forward. They're talking Mm -hmm. about, and then when I broaden it and go international, you know, Mm -hmm. listening to some of the women of color on the UN, listening to some of them who are heads of countries or at least in, you know, the leadership administration, they're talking about their, their language, their phrasing is not talking about going back. They're mm-hmm. talking about how do we chart a course forward that a more inclusive economy, a more equitable infrastructure, you know, business development, like everybody's talking about going forward. Mm-hmm. Do you, you know, I know the answer to this, but I guess it's something unique about women, about being able to t- look at, you know, where we've been, the challenges of the present and sort of how do you reshift and change to go forward? Yeah, I think we have to be open to change. And I think women are much more um, insightful and open. And let's just be frank. (laughs) You know, it is women, particularly women of color, that have been subjugated and harmed the most from the centuries of racism, right, Uh, sexism, you know, all of it that has made this country what it is today. And so talking about going back, it doesn't work for us, right? Back there never worked for us. And so um, we, this country needs surgery. Like we don't need a Band-Aid. We don't need a little ointment. Like we got to go deep into the wounds that we've always had. And I'm not talking about a, from a navel gazing perspective. I'm talking about let's figure out what does not work, what we know does not work and rebuild the systems and structures in ways that gives women like us, Eljoy, a fighting chance to make it in this country. And that's what I'm about. And, and like you, that's what people I know all across this country are about. And we have an opportunity to have the first jobs program uh, that centers women as a part of this economic recovery. And I'll be damned if I stop fighting until that economic package is passed. Now, <clears throat> there will be the peanut gallery as always, who are saying, well, if you're doing something focused specifically on women, what about the men? They need to be heads of households because we're still doing that for some reason. <laughs> and all listening as if we're being exclusive of the brothers listening. Brothers, I got you. I'm bringing you into the conversation. But, you know, from our perspective, when we're talking about centering women, or at least when I'm talking about, let me see, focus on myself, is looking at the statistics. A large percentage 
of households, particularly with households with children, are led by women. Right. Mm -hmm. And so you can't have while at the same time, yes, we want to make sure that people across the board, no matter gender, have a decent wage, have benefits and things of that nature. We also know there's a large percentage of children who are in poverty. We mm -hmm. also know there are a large percentage of women who are in poverty and that focusing on women so that we can also bring children out of poverty does not take anything away from you fellas. It is ensuring that it is equitable to make sure that we are lifting communities and particularly the children who are in those households. But I don't know, April is, you know, what is your yeah. thought on that? I look, I, I believe a few things. I believe a lot of stuff. I almost said a bad word, but um. I believe that we got to solve for those who have been the most impacted, right? We talk about equity, but we have to practice equity, right? And that is solving for those who have been most impacted. And women have been the most impacted by this pandemic. We've lost the most wealth. We've lost the most jobs, right? We still have the highest unemployment rates. So we can't ignore that. We have to solve for that. And I believe we don't ever leave anybody behind, right? They talk about trickle down economics. I believe when you center women, you get trickle up economics. It helps all of us because we are nurturers. We are caregivers. We are not gonna leave our brothers behind, but we do need to talk specifically about the, the, the issues of women in this moment and how we solve for them. Absolutely. Well, <clears throat> the other thing I uh, wanted to talk about is just as we recover, what does mm -hmm. a reimagined or uh, a forward economy or recovery, jobs recovery, business recovery, what does that look like to you? So I believe we have to pass. Um, it's a first step, right? It's not the end all be all. Let me say that. But the, the federal infrastructure plan that is going to create millions of jobs in this country both the physical infrastructure, but also the care infrastructure. We gotta get the $400 billion investment in home care for all of the reasons I talked about, but we also gotta make sure we're investing in childcare and paid leave as well. Um, so that those infrastructure packages are important and we have to do them. Um, and I think recovery you know, looks like making sure we are creating good jobs, that we are making sure people have the ability to form a union. We still deal with 21st or 20th century policies. Uh, we, we try to act like we still, you know, have the same 21st, 20th century workforce. This is the 21st century. We have a 21st century economy and a 21st century workforce. And so we have to figure out what works for 21st century workers. We need to think about things like portable benefits because we don't stay at the same job for 20, 30, 40 years, right? We move around. Our benefits need to move around with us. We need to reimagine what a voice at works look, looks like. Um, we didn't have a gig economy, right? Or a gig worker a hundred years ago. So we gotta make sure we are solving for the workers of today and the workers of tomorrow. Yeah. You know, to, to that point in terms of a, a gig economy, I wanted to talk to somebody on the show about that because didn't we, we did have gig economy. It just wasn't called that or think people had specific like things that they worked in. But I, I agree with your point that our benefits and things shouldn't be tied to a job. It never made sense to me mm -hmm. that 
you know, healthcare was tied to a job or I understand the movement of how that became possible from a, a labor organizing perspective because it didn't exist. Mm-hmm. But as all things should, they should evolve as we move forward, <laughs> you know, as a society. You know, I have this rant sometimes, April, where I'm reading stories or reading things or whatever. And I'm like, this is why we don't, we have not met aliens yet because people won't evolve. Like we're still, <laughs> like humanity is stuck, right? And I feel the same way even about, you know, racism and, 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 tolerance and so all of that piece or whatever I'm just like oh my god because I'm so focused on having to deal with your racist ass mm-hmm. I can't think about larger things like how mm-hmm. to read stars or how, like I can't it's too much of our capacity and our brain power has mm-hmm. to deal with you know dealing with racism dealing with sexism dealing with you know equity dealing with the refusal to evolve as a society refusal to evolve as you know human beings and then we don't get to do the larger big things. We don't get to go back to the moon. We don't get to go. We don't get to do any of that stuff because you won't evolve. Evolve. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. I'm just, I'm just, just, I just want us to evolve and to get to a a, a better state. Like inequity. Yeah. Someone said right insanity is doing the same shit over and over again and expecting different results i mean come on man (laughs) (sighs) that's what frustrates me about the going back narrative that's right right is that you know so you want to go back to something that we know is inefficient that we know is discriminatory that we know is inequitable that you yes you may feel comfortable we may all feel comfortable with it but because it's what we know, but it doesn't mean that it completely serves us in order to to do that way. I try to be mindful of that, April, even in your own individual lives, right? We think about the things, well, you know, I make my greens this way because that's how they made. And that's always just like, well, that's going to get you high blood pressure. So do you want to evolve and eat, like and eat something better? Or you want to do it because this is the only way, like this is the only way, right? And it's, no right. one says not to do it ever again, but maybe you should change, you know, maybe you should make some changes and shifts this way. Yeah. And so from the small things to the large things like our healthcare not being tied to our job, you know, people being uh, uh, resourced properly so that we don't have to have so much reliance on the social, the safety net in order to pick people up because people won't do, corporations won't do what they need to do. Mm -hmm. I think that's something we need to think about. Yeah, I promise you the first time you had that smoked turkey neck or that smoked turkey wing in your (laughs) greens, you loved it, right? And you never went back to the ham hock. No. And so I promise you, if we can figure out, <laughs> wow, April, wow. If we can, <laughs> if we can figure out. Look I know your it. team is like, what in the world <laughs> is happening in this interview? <laughs> Just black girl magic. But see, here's the thing. You knew what I meant. Yes. <laughs> figure out how we can make do some things so right if we can pass care infrastructure and prove that it works it does open up the imagination for all of us to do more 
right? Care yeah. infrastructure. The, the, the brand new smoked turkey one. <laughs> <laughs> it makes all other things possible. So, you know, the other thing <laughs> regarding our forward economy. Oh, my God. Okay. <laughs> the other thing regarding our forward economy, you know, I read something this week about because of, well, during COVID, there was a boom in terms of women of color, particularly black women, to be mm -hmm. specific, in starting businesses. Mm -hmm. And it got me to thinking in connection of we do spend a lot of time investing and talking about developing business development and business ownership, be it for black women, immigrant women, you know, Lat Latina women, like how do we, you know, sort of grow and support the opportunities that individuals can have in order to create businesses of their own. Mm -hmm. But it, it also got me to thinking that if we have this investment on people being business owners and being able to employ others, because there's a difference between being self-employed, like I am, have a very small staff, you know, not something that's going to grow, you know, larger. It's actually not my desire to grow to like 500 people or something like that. But there are for other people who are, right? But then how does that work with labor unions? Because then what are we saying to, and I don't know that this conversation happens that as you are growing and building a business that may grow to 500, mm -hmm. 5,000, 5 million people, what is your value as a business owner in terms of having, a, having your workers unionized? Yeah, I think that's a fascinating question. And this is where I get into trouble you know, with other parts of the labor movement. I don't look like most labor leaders. I don't think like them. And I think we, again, have to reimagine what labor unions, what the labor movement needs to be in this century, right? We know what worked in the 20th century, what at the end of the 20th century, quite frankly, wasn't working. But I believe that we have to reimagine what the labor movement looks like. I think we need to think about partnering with business in a different way. So that whether you're a gig worker or you work at a auto factory, you know, with, with 5,000 workers, that we don't leave any workers out, right? Small businesses, big businesses, everything in between independent contractors. And that what we're trying to solve for is not, you know, one worker that works in a specific job in a specific place but how are we building collective power for all workers? And I believe ultimately fighting to end poverty and fighting to build justice. The workers in my union, there is no worker in economic justice without racial justice, right? And so for us, those two fights are inextricably linked. We can't avoid them. And I think as a labor movement, we need to wrap our arms around that and it's getting better, you know, bit by bit. But we also have to stand up for other fights. We got to say immigrant justice is a part of our fight. We have to say environmental justice is a part of our fight. I believe we have to stay restorative justice and right-sizing our criminal justice system is a part of our fight. And fighting for workers who have different abilities and embracing the disability justice movement. Like we can no longer be um, singularly focused on what happens in the work site, right, to individual workers. But I think we got to meet the needs of our entire workers' lives. And it takes us partnering with businesses to be able to do that. Mm. 
Yeah, you know, I'd love to dive deeper as you you mentioned and talking about that as we are having the conversation for people to be, you know, to create new businesses, create new roles, you know, thinking about the larger scale down to the medium sized businesses mm-hmm. of what you as you're building the business what practices do you put in place in order to make sure that the workers who are helping you build this business, right? Cause mm-hmm. you're not doing it alone. I love how people just like, I'm a self-made. I'm like, mm, no, I feel like, yeah, cause you're not making the computer chips by yourself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> people to work there. <laughs> like, you know, like you're not making all 18 million of them yourself. Yeah. Like you're not self-made. There are other, you, you also drive to work on a road that was paid for, but you know, there's lots of other things that <laughs> contribute right. to that. But thinking about as we're creating new industries and things will evolve, right? You know, there wasn't an industry of cell phones and tablets and computers. And now that is a, a huge part of the uh, workforce that exists now because it's mm-hmm. new technology, right? So even right. going forward, thinking about the new jobs created from solar and wind and things just as we have a new infrastructure uh, focus that takes climate change into effect, what new industries will Mm -hmm. be created and therefore what labor protections do we need to make sure are in place and benefits are in place for those, for that type of work. So, and how are we inviting workers into the conversation so that they can be self-determinative? Right. So that they can have a seat at the table and helping to make decisions that impact their lives. And they know a hell of a lot. Right. They don't just know how to make the chips. Right. And so I think we got to include workers and their voices in the conversation. Well, April, it was certainly a fun conversation with you. I loved having you at the front of the class. We went from ham hock (laughs) to turkey wings. (laughs) but it was a it was a great conversation and I love talking about the forward economy and particularly how we build a future that is equitable a future that relies on taking care of the workers that do the work that we need and so shout out to the over 400,000 home care and nursing home workers of your union and all across the country who are doing valuable work we value your service and we value your work and we'll continue to fight to make sure you have the resources you need uh, to live a, a joyous and prosperous life thank you april thank you Eljoy. this was great Yes. And thanks to all of you for joining us for Sunday Civics here on Sirius XM Urban View. We'll be back next Sunday with more Sunday Civics. Have a great one.